0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the big, big dinosaur, dinosaur podcast, podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur.
1: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett.
0: And I'm Sabrina.
1: And today's podcast is brought to you by the Royal Tyrrell Museum, which is located in southern Alberta, Canada. It's one of the top paleontological research institutes in the world. The entire museum is dedicated to the science of paleontology. It's definitely a must-see for every dinosaur enthusiast. More information can be found at tyrolmuseum.com. This week, we have an interview with Peter May from Research Casting International that we did while we were at SVP last week, and Dinosaur of the Day Edmontonia. We also have a lot of news.
0: A lot of it from SVP. Yeah.
1: And we'd like to thank a few of our $5 patrons again. This week, we'd like to especially thank Scotty, Jackson, and Megan. And speaking of SVP, a few of the things that we'd like to thank people for is we got an awesome new dinosaur textbook from Columbia University Press called Dinosaurs.
0: Yep, we're really excited to read that.
1: I just started reading it, actually. It's pretty good. In the foreword, the author Spencer Lucas says that when he wrote it, there weren't any undergraduate dinosaur textbooks, and this was kind of the first one, although this is the sixth edition that just came out, and it's pretty interesting so far. We also got some awesome paleo art prints from Josh Cotton, who we got a chance to get lunch with. So thanks, Josh. They're really nice.
0: Mm-hmm. You may have seen a picture he posted on Twitter and Facebook.
1: Yeah. And on top of that, we met a lot of other great people and did a couple of interviews and
0: with plans to do many more. Yes.
1: <laughs> too, way too many people to mention here. So we're really happy that we got to meet so many people. And
0: Yeah, it was a really great first SVP and we can't wait until next year.
1: Yeah. Next year it's in Calgary, Canada. Mm-hmm. So we'll be back in Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> so jumping right into the news, there's a new sauropod from Australia named Savannosaurus Elliotorum. And the name comes from Savannah, referring to the countryside where the specimen was found. And the species name is in honor of the Elliott family for, quote, their ongoing contributions to Australian paleontology, end quote. So pretty cool. They uncovered at least eight vertebrae, several ribs, and pieces of legs, feet, hips, and scapula, which is kind of like a shoulder blade. But I struggle with whether or not it's a shoulder blade if it's above a leg It's kind of a leg blade. I don't know what you'd call it. (laughs) They estimate that it was probably about 50 feet or about 15 meters long and probably weighed about 20 tons. So not too big for a sauropod, but obviously still a large animal. With Savannosaurus, they also discovered the first ever sauropod skull from Australia from the previously described Diamantina matildae, which is considered to be a close relative of Savannosaurus. Both Savannosaurus and Diamantinosaurus are estimated at living between 95 and 98 million years ago. It's pretty early for sauropods in Australia, since we don't have any indication that they were around any time before 105 million years ago. And at in an interview, they even said we don't have a single tooth or anything from before then. So it's possible that they were around, but Probably not in very large numbers. If they were, Stephen Poropat and others who wrote the paper did a phylogenetic analysis of many sauropods, including the two described in the paper, and they concluded that titanosaurs likely went from South America and through Antarctica to get to Australia in the mid-Cretaceous during a warm period. This would likely make these two sauropods titanosaurs. But one of the themes at SVP this year Hmm. was that doing phylogenetic analyses with just single individuals can be very difficult and often misleading because fossils have this nasty knack for deforming or otherwise changing in the fossilization process. So... If you just have the one species, it's hard to say if this characteristic you see in the bone is an actual characteristic of the species that's really important, or if it's just something that happened to happen to that particular individual and doesn't really mean anything. But anyway, the authors noted that, and they also pointed out that there were some differences between their specimens and other known titanosaurs, so it's a little bit of an oddball pair of sauropods. And even in the title, they don't call them titanosaurs, they call them sauropods, but likely titanosaurs. (laughs) So as Elizabeth Fowler encouraged at SVP, we just have to go collect more specimens and then we'll know if the traits that we're seeing in these particular specimens are diagnostic for the individuals or if they're just one-off abnormalities that make them look like titanosaurs or not.
0: I hope they're titanosaurs
1: it makes the most sense. They're late Cretaceous and
0: mm-hmm.
1: pretty much all the sauropods we know.
0: I like the idea of them being spread around.
1: Yep. <laughs> Next up, there's new evidence of dinosaurs being social, or as the authors put it, quote, the first oviraptorosaur bone bed, evidence of gregarious behavior in a manoraptor and theropod, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> so particularly the dinosaur bone bed was mostly... Avimimus in the Nemect formation of Mongolia. And Avimimus is a very bird like, thus probably the (laughs) Avimimus, dog sized theropod from the late Cretaceous that was described back in the 1980s. This bone bed has both adult and juvenile bones, but most are the older or larger end of the spectrum. So the authors, who were Gregory Funston, Phil Curry, and others, believe that this age assemblage might be due to a quote-unquote flock, (laughs) which had a minimum age. I like that they're referring to them as a flock. Yeah. Unfortunately, the bone bed they were working from was found by poachers first, so some of the bones were lost before the legitimate paleontologists got there. But luckily, there was still a lot to be found. Specifically, they uncovered 177 bones, of which about 160 are assigned to avomimus. 18 of the bones are different sized tibiae, making our best guess that there were about 18 avomimus in the group. So if you have 18 different sized leg bones, you figure you have 18 individuals because hopefully they don't have different length leg bones on their left and right leg. I think 13 of them were from the same side of the body, so you could say there's at least 13, but since they were all different lengths, I think it. Is probably just 18. Also, there were more than two adults, so it probably wasn't just one big family with a whole bunch of kids at different ages. The deposit appears to have been caused by a mass death, possibly either by quicksand or a catastrophic flood, but they're really not sure. They think that since we haven't seen a flock <laughs> of Ovarapterosaurs before, This might tell us that dinosaurs were getting more social in the late Cretaceous. And they point to a couple other studies that show kind of herds or whatever you want to call them, (laughs) flocks of dinosaurs in different categories and Taxa in the Cretaceous as well. We don't have a good guess for why they flocked since they were probably herbivorous and not pack hunters. So I guess it's just...
0: Safety in numbers?
1: Yeah, could be or I don't know. Or
0: they were just building up these more complex systems i don't know
1: and one last bit of news this one specifically from svp and i really enjoyed watching these talks at svp because usually when i find an article i have to spend two or three hours reading through all the details and looking up some extraneous specific scientific words that i don't know within the background of that But at SVP, it's like a 15-minute presentation. They give you all the background you need, and then they give you their conclusions and their discussion right in it. So it really makes it a lot easier to report on.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then they come in like two-hour chunks, so there's a lot to learn.
1: Yeah. So in those two hours, I learned quite a bit more than I usually would in two hours of reading just one paper. And there's a lot less room for misinterpreting things, because the man or woman is right there explaining everything to you. So... This one I think got the most news of any of the dinosaur articles that were presented there. Because Norman and his co-authors found brain tissue that was preserved, and particularly it was in an iguanodontian, and it's especially interesting because we've had endocasts of brains before, which is basically when mud would fill the inside of the skull, and you can kind of see that shape but this appears to be the actual brain that fossilized. I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen that before, but apparently this is the first time, so it's cool. Some of the interesting things we learned while we were watching this talk was that the brain doesn't actually fill the brain case completely. It kind of rests in the bottom of the brain case, and then there's a bunch of space above it that's used for other tissue and blood supply and things like that that the brain needs. kind of makes sense. But when this fossilized brain was found in the UK by a fossil comber on the coast, they noticed that there were tubule blood vessels that were visible in kind of the structure of the brain. So you could start seeing these details that you wouldn't see in just a simple outline of the brain case. Another sign that it was the actual brain that fossilized is that the outer structure meninges <laughs> appeared to be visible. So a meninges is kind of like a membrane layer that goes around the brain, and the way Norman explained it was that it kind of looks like your bed in the morning where the sheets are kind of rumpled, and so it's like a fabric stretched over the mattress. That's kind of what a meninges looks like on a brain, so it's that kind of rumply texture. On the fossilized brain, they could also see the capillary structure preserved, and Based on the shape of the brain, it looks like it was actually in the top of the brain case. And we were saying earlier that the brain usually sits in the bottom and then the blood symbol lies above it. So they have a theory for how the brain ended up at the top of the brain case, which is pretty interesting. So they think this Iguanodontian died and then it fell upside down or otherwise, you know, fell down a hill or got knocked upside down or whatever. And then the brain collapsed to the top of the brain case because it's laying upside down and then it died, so the brain falls up. Interesting. Yeah. And then the brain pickled in place, is how <laughs> I described it. So
0: it sounds like a recipe. <laughs>
1: yeah. So it got like it went through some sort of pickling process that sort of preserved it so it didn't just decay. And then finally, it mineralized in a regular kind of fossilization process. So we end up with this really weird brain that's shoved into a part of the brain case where it wouldn't normally be, so the shape of it doesn't necessarily tell us a ton, except you can see all these remnants of some of these blood vessels and the meninges and stuff on it that's all very interesting and useful to people that care about brain tissue. And he was very specific to say that it's not the brain itself itself, because, you know, it has fossilized, so it's not like you can just take this and get DNA out of it or whatever. It's it's still a fossil just like anything else. But some of the superficial tissues, like those meninges, are preserved, at least the texture of them, so there's a lot of useful information there. So pretty cool. Found a pickled, then fossilized iguanodontian brain.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a delicacy.
1: <laughs> I <can't>, guess <laughs> Not you, the
0: fossil, or not the mineralized part, but the pickled.
1: Pickled iguanodon brain or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. I think it was found in the UK, pretty sure.
0: There you go. UK specialty. Yeah. <laughs> so like Garrett mentioned earlier, we learned a lot from SVP, and so that there's not information overload, we're going to just be slowly doling it out.
1: Yeah. And we have to absorb some of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot. <laughs>
0: But there's plenty of other news that came out this week. So first, Inverse posted an article about how the moon may help us learn more about the non-avian dinosaur extinction. And the moon has Schrodinger Basin, which came about 3.8 billion years ago when the Schrodinger impactor hit the moon and left a 200-mile-across crater. And the Chicxulub crater impact on Earth may have looked similar, though because of stronger gravity, it might have happened more quickly. So, interesting to see these kind of parallels and figure out what we can learn from them. Mm-hmm. Next, Princess Aliyah Sultana Babi from India has been nicknamed the Dinosaur Princess, according <laughs> to Hindustan Times, and I think that's a great nickname.
1: It is. I want to be the Dinosaur Princess. <laughs> or Prince, I guess, might be more fitting.
0: <laughs> so she has a fossilized Titanosaurus egg from the late Cretaceous that she got from a villager who used it to grind spices. The, the villager didn't know what she had. <laughs> it's just
1: like a natural mortar and pestle situation. You find a fossilized egg. You're yeah. like, what a handy
0: stone bowl I have here. Using that egg to grind up a pickled dinosaur brain, then get out a a real special meal there. I guess. So. Anyway. <laughs> so this villager lives in an area called India's Jurassic Park. And the dinosaur princess, Bobby, calls it her Masala Spice Egg, and she keeps it wrapped in white silk in a red velvet jewelry box. In the 1980s, researchers found a bunch of dinosaur fossils on her family estate, including the carnivore Rajasaurus. And now that area is Balasinor Dinosaur Fossil Park, and it has fiberglass dinosaur models, though unfortunately, apparently it's been a little bit neglected, or it looks a little neglected. There's a nearly complete museum nearby, though, so hopefully it gets completed soon. And Bobby has a big interest in dinosaurs, so she's been working really hard to get more tourists to visit.
1: That's very interesting. Maybe she should take that egg out of her jewelry box and put it on display if she wants people to visit.
0: Maybe, but it sounds like there's <laughs> other stuff there. That's true. According to Daily Mail, Steve Etches, a former plumber, spent 30 years collecting fossils and is now putting them on display in a new exhibit called The Etches Collection in Cambridge, UK. He found 2,500 specimens from the Jurassic, and fossils include dinosaurs, crocodiles, sharks, barnacles, and more. And previously, he'd kept his collection at his home, which is pretty impressive. I don't know how you pack that many fossils into your home.
1: Yeah, I kind of wonder what the breakdown is. If it's like 2,400 barnacles, and then just like a couple dinosaur and crocodile <laughs> parts.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That wasn't that specific. Want we'll yeah. to see the collection?
1: It'd be a lot easier to keep a whole bunch of fossilized barnacles than it would a bunch of, like, skulls or something.
0: Yeah, that's true. Next, d published a piece on this beautiful dinosaur egg museum in China at Qinglong Mountain Geopark. The building has heavily textured surfaces made from concrete over bamboo canes, and it covers a site of dinosaur eggs that was found in 1995. So, if we make it over to China, that's one of the museums I want to see.
1: There are a lot. China has so many. <laughs> At SVP, one of the speakers mentioned this museum that has more feathered dinosaur fossils than all the other museums in the world combined. And it was all found or collected by one individual that ended up donating it all. Wow. It's crazy. That
0: is crazy. It's crazy the stuff they have. So now that it's November, it's a good time to tell you that last month in October was International Dinosaur Month. (laughs) (laughs) didn't realize. But because of that, Smithsonian Books published three new books, according to Smithsonian Mag, and that includes Dinosaurs, How They Lived and Evolved, written by Darren Nash and Paul Barrett, Giants of the Lost World by Donald R. Prothero, and Claws and Effect, a graphic novel and part of the children's series Secret Smithsonian Adventures. I found most of these books on Goodreads and added them to our list, but not all of them yet.
1: It's interesting that October is International Dinosaur Month because I've seen on Twitter things about November Saurus or something like that being like the month for paleo art. Oh, really? So, yeah. It probably just depends. It's probably on who something for every
0: month if you dig hard enough. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Just celebrate dinosaurs year round. That's fine with me.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like how every day is a holiday if you look hard enough.
0: Yeah. So next, the WWT Wetland Center in London had a Dinosaurs at Barnes Festival on October 28th to 30th. And on the 29th and 30th, they had Dinosaur Days with workshops and dinosaur talks. And I know at least one of our listeners attended, so hope to hear back more soon. It sounded really fun. Yeah. And these days we can't go by one week without mentioning at least one story of someone dressing up in a t-rex costume and we saw a fair amount of that at svp as well which is fun
1: yeah we brought a couple of dinosaur costumes too but we didn't have time to really do anything crazy with them
0: (laughs) yeah well you may have seen our short video
1: oh yeah Yeah. our 100th episode video we wore one of them at least yeah
0: Anyway, in Pennsylvania, one man named Christian Baum's dressing up in a T-Rex costume to help bridge the gap between local politics and the public and to encourage people to be innovative. This is according to Onward State. He said, quote, I just want to give back and serve the community, but in a weird way. <laughs> <laughs> and because of him, students at this nearby campus have been dressing up in T-Rex costumes as well. So he's inspiring people. That's good. Yeah. There's also a Denver Bronco cheerleader who dressed up in an inflatable T-Rex costume the day before for Halloween and still managed to do all the moves in her dance routine. Even the kick line at the end, that was impressive. Wow. So we'll post a link and you can watch the clip yourself. It's pretty fun.
1: That's funny. They usually do like more sultry outfits for the cheerleaders, but put like this whole body covering mm-hmm. T-Rex costume is hilarious. Plus the head's flopping a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But speaking of sultry, this is why I'm broke. Shared pictures of these T-Rex heels, which are pretty elaborate. They're chunky and spiky, and the base of them are is the full T-Rex body on each of them. Jeez. So their backs look like they have these huge Bowser-like spikes. <laughs> hmm. And we'll post a link on our blog. You can see for yourself. But they look pretty epic and hard to walk in. <laughs> Although, who knows? Yeah. And a quick shout out to Tim, thank you, who shared via email that the dinosaurs in World of Warcraft are getting feathers, and he sent some images. They look pretty cool. Nice. Yeah.
1: Especially in video games, feathers haven't really caught on much yet.
0: Mm Mm-mm. Next, thanks to Patrick, who shared this one with us via Facebook. According to Tech Times, there's a new dinosaur toy for Power Rangers. And the toy is the Red Ranger's T-Rex Zord, which has a liquid metal-like suit, a cannon on its back, missiles for hands, and one big claw on each foot. It looks different from its traditional look in the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, but apparently that's how everything is for this rebooted movie, which will be out March 24th, 2017. And I had no idea there were dinosaurs in Power Rangers, so that's pretty cool.
1: I think that was the original Power Rangers, wasn't it? They, like, combined, or each one of them had their, like, dinosaur form, and then they combined into, like, a giant thing. Oh, really? I don't remember. It's it's been, like, 20 years since I watched Power Rangers.
0: I never really watched Power Rangers, (laughs) so I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And last, speaking of International Dinosaur Month and, what was it, November-saurus, november saurus yeah November is also known as die November, and
1: oh that's what yeah is that it the was same supposed one? to be die November, not November source oh okay, I thought there <laughs> might be two one
0: up. two different ones, which would have been pretty funny, yeah, but so die November, as far as I know, started back in 2013 when two parents moved around their kids' dinosaur toys at night and set them up in these elaborate displays to try and trick their kids into thinking that their dinosaur toys came alive at night. <laughs> And so now each day of the month of November they post new pictures of their dinosaurs and they've even published two books. I'm sure they're working on a third one for this month.
1: Very cool. Yeah. That's a fun origin story for Dinovember. November. It is. It rolls off the tongue a lot better than November Saurus, too.
0: Uh I don't know. November saurus is pretty good.
1: <laughs> it makes it sound like it's just one individual though, rather than like all the dinosaurs. <laughs> I think it's the problem. Yeah. And now onto our interview with Peter May, the founder and president of Research Casting International. RCI specializes in specimen restoration, casting, mounting, exhibit fabrication and transportation, and it's amazing how many things that they do.
0: <laughs> yeah, and how many of their stuff you can see around the world.
1: Yeah. So we're joined today by Peter May, the president of Research Casting International and they're responsible for basically all of the big dinosaur projects that we've talked about recently, <laughs> <laughs> at least as far as museums are concerned. So could you give us a brief history of what kind of started you down this career
2: path? Sure. yeah. We've been in business for uh, 30 years now, and so uh, you know like we work for museums throughout the world. The earliest ones were in New York City. We'd the rearing barisaur that was in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And the British Museum, were working there back then. Museums in Japan, you know, and that was the early stuff. And we're still in in touch with all these museums. And it's funny now, some of the museums are are coming back to us. The exhibit is old, 30 years old. They're outdated. So now they're calling us back to go in and fix things up. So it's just pretty neat. So you started with the rearing barisaur? That's a big start. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a huge start. We started there and then... uh, the British Museum in in London, mm-hmm. well, the Natural History Museum it's called now, and uh, their dinosaur exhibit. And we did about put 25 skeletons for them back then.
1: So did you do Dippy back then? No, Dippy was older, right?
2: Yeah, Dippy was in the hall at that time. Okay. But we're going back over to, to work on Dippy in, yeah. uh, in
1: January of this coming year. So you're basically making it ready to be disassembled and reassembled over and over again while it travels around right right? yeah yeah it's
2: going to be a traveling exhibit i think they have four or five venues just now and that starts um a year january so january
1: 2018
0: cool is it a lot more difficult to get something ready for travel as opposed to staying on Um, exhibit or
2: something like Dippy's? a a bit tougher because it's an old plaster mount you know nowadays a lot of the work we do it's in plastics fiberglass and things like that and Mm. the, the mounts are are made so that they are modular. So in this case, what we're doing, we're taking the old mount, which was done back in the '20s, and then we'll turn it into a more modern mount. Modular mount it goes apart and comes together a lot easier.
1: Cool. So, in if you're making a new one for a museum, even if it's not traveling, do you make it modular just for ease in the future? Or? Yeah. In the odd case, we'll weld something up, but it's uh, very rare. You
2: know, now we have keyways we use, and we machine the joints, and we have machine screws the whole things together.
1: Cool. So the other I think really big thing you did recently was the Titanosaur yep. for the American Museum of Natural History. Yep. What was casting that like I saw a couple of pictures on your slideshow. Well, that was our big return to the AMNH. We we
2: hadn't been there a long time, so you know, that was nine, 1992. Hmm. And then we were back there last year. And there what it was it was the biggest Titanosaur ever found and they're excavating in the field in Argentina. So um, we were at the SVP in Berlin, and they asked us if we'd be involved in that. So uh, we sent a crew to Argentina with our scanners, digital scanners, and as it came out of the field, we, we scanned it, and it was being prepped, so we'd scan one side, and then they flipped the blocks, prepared the other side, and then we sent the crew down again, and uh, we went down in February for two weeks, and then we went down again in May, and we had had everything scanned, and then came back to our shop, and we put that into a... Um, a CAD program, we carved it up on a milling machine, five-axis milling machine, mm. and uh, we carved the whole thing up. And then we took molds off it, and uh, we mounted one for Argentina. It's in Trillo uh, right now, mm. and, and then then the other one went to the American Museum of Natural History.
1: Oh, cool! I didn't realize there was one in Argentina too. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and so, that was filmed in uh, David Attenborough's BBC show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, that they was had the filmed little in VR Argentina. thing to yeah. go with it. That, yeah, that part. They great. were down there for all that in Argentina. Yeah.
1: Cool. Yeah. So with the titanosaur, was there some three D printing, or was that is that the five axis? Uh,
2: yeah, that was five axis I milling mean, because it was too big to print. Yeah gotcha. the, the printers we have, like they're fairly small in comparison. Like we can print maybe a foot by a foot by a foot. Okay. And then the skull behind us here—that's that, a, a print originally. And, oh, really? And We just print it up in section by section, assemble it, and then we take a mold off it, and that's a horned dinosaur.
1: I really like the idea of using 3D printing in all of this paleontology and casting, molding technology because it's, it's so accessible. Yeah. And mm. so what you basically use it kind of as like a, a step in the process rather than doing the sculpting necessarily? Um, or Well, again,
2: here's a, for instance, like we have two models in front of us, a Mosasaur and a Plesiosaur, and they're going to be in Kuwait. And these are the, the scale models that have been built out of epoxy by our sculptors. And we, we sculpt it small scale. Mm-hmm. We send it to our client. They approve it. And the approvals are at this stage. And then what we do, we scan the models and then um, enlarge the models to fit. Like the model here is about a foot and a half. And the, the finished ones going to be about 48 feet long. <laughs> and, it, and it's in production now in our shop.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, those look really cool. Is that the first stuff you've done in the Middle East, or have you done other stuff over there before?
2: Um, we've done a couple smaller projects in, in Egypt, and uh, we did something in Jordan.
1: Okay, yeah. So, so I don't think of dinosaurs when I think of the Middle East, really. <laughs> no,
2: but the museums they're building are huge, awesome. Like, yeah, and I think it opens next fall, and we're due to install there in March of next year. Cool. Yeah, they don't do anything small. No. <laughs> no.
0: So, how many people work with you now?
2: Our staff right now is probably 35, and we have about a facility of, I guess, uh, 48,000 square feet. And uh, we have conservators who handle the fossil material for the, uh, the job at the Smithsonian. And then we have a mounting area just for the Smithsonian. And we have a collections area, and it's all climate controlled, and, you know, because
1: their fossils are in our shop, so we have to look after them. Cool. You're actually not just mounting things and rearranging things, you're actually preparing some of the fossils, right? There are some that were still encased partially in like a yeah.
2: jacket. Yeah, they sort of had a, a plaque mount, uh, the, the one, uh, Roadkill Stegosaurus, that was its nickname, and it's a, <laughs> a tight specimen now of Stegosaurus stenops, and it was on its side. And now what we've done, we've we've cut under it all, and we, we flipped it over, and it's lying on its plates. So the backside, no one's ever seen since 1930s <laughs> when it was prepared. Awesome. And we're going to mount it vertically. So what people see is both sides of the animal as it died.
1: That's really cool. How's all the stuff going aside from Stasos? It's going really well.
2: Yeah, we have a camera server we're doing, which is also on the side. And that was almost completely embedded in Matrix on, on the side it was lying on. Mm. And it's a very, very hard sandstone. We started to know why they didn't proceed. Because <laughs> <laughs> so we've been chewing away on that for quite a while. They did all the easy stuff and then left the rest for you. Yeah, basically. they went as far as they could, I guess, comfortably. And, and they probably had a deadline. You know, it was one of those things that probably, come on, we can get this thing on the exhibit. You know. So they only went so far. I said, well, just we'll put it lying down. You know?
1: <laughs> That's great. When you're setting up a real holotype or, you know, not casts of a dinosaur skeleton, I saw that you use giant sandboxes or mobile sandboxes yep. to hold the...
2: How does that work? Yep. Well, we have quite a few of that. And uh, we, we have it in the conservation lab and in our blacksmith lab as well, where, you know, like, it's like a fifth hand or third hand, I guess. <laughs> and uh, what they can do, like, you can set the fossil in the sand. And then if anything does happen, it's not going to fall very far, and it fall just into the sand. Because hmm. uh, one rule you learn very early is never hold a fossil over the floor. Because okay. <laughs> if something does, and it does happen, you know, some fossils are very old you know, and, and conserved maybe 50, 60 years ago, and then hmm. the consolidants, and adhesives fail, you know, the, the older ones that they use. And, and that's what we're doing now. We're removing as much of the old material as we can. Introducing new new glues, adhesives, and, and consolidants that have been approved in the last or another 150 years. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about the glue failing and then part of the fossil falling. Like that's oh, yeah. got to be. Yeah, and it happens, and and you can see it if, if you look look very close at the old specimens. It starts to crystallize. Hmm. You know, so it's a big hint. If the the glue joints are crystallizing, then it's probably failed. You know, so <laughs> and and sometimes you know ha- having a control break is advantageous to us. You know, because then we can introduce more consolidants inside the bone and, and, and prepare it a little bit better. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Hmm.
0: So, could you tell us a bit about the process? You have paleontologists who come to you, and then they already have pretty much what they want in mind, and then you tell them what's possible or (laughs) yeah yeah
2: and you know like there's there's a whole range like we have some paleontologists who know exactly what they want you know and and then what what we do we'll we'll get a sketch from a paleontologist and then we'll we'll do a drawing of it and and they'll say well we can do this this and this and we'll go back to them and and then if they have any changes to be made they'll make them um in other cases we'll, we'll get a stick drawing and they'll say you know like do whatever you can like you guys have been doing so many you, you know because over the years we've done we, we counted up a little while ago and i think we're probably over 800 skeletons we've done in the history oh, of the company wow. you know so, so when we do go into a museum you know like if they're doing a new exhibit the people there may not have mounted any you know like they, they haven't done anything at all and they have an idea what they want to do and they might have a little bit of experience then you have other museums that have no experience whatsoever so they they look to us for a bit of guidance along the way you know, and then we take measurements of everything before we start mounting. And then we know how big the specimen will be. And that gets to the exhibit designers. Then they know how big the cases have to be. Because th- there have been cases, you know, like in the history of the company where things have been measured and gone to construction for the cases. And the cases come back and they don't fit. And then the big one was a horse exhibit where they went to the exhibit construction company and they made all the cases and they sent the cases to us and all the cases were vertical instead of horizontal. So, you know, you think, well, they should have known it was a horse exhibit. (laughs) Horses don't sit vertically, but they had four cases and everything was vertical. But like, so whoever did it got the length width height mixed up. Mm. Oh no. (laughs) So So
0: what what did they end up doing? They had to make brand new cases. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, (laughs) because
2: the the width became the height. Yeah. So like it was all unusable. Well, it's nice that it wasn't your mistake,
1: at least. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> but, it, you know, it should have been caught well ahead of time. And for sure. And now, that's one example we, we use when we do go to museums, like to make sure the measurements are okay. And it's usually better for us to do it. You know, because with exhibit designers, at times, it's it's just an afterthought. Like, they'll be at the museum having a meeting. So, oh, while I'm there, I'll make a measurement. And then they'll go, to me, go down, measure something, and they're gone. When we go in, that's our focus. Mm-hmm. And we'll make sure it's accurate. You know what
1: you're looking for, yeah. whereas they're just kind of yeah. eyeballing. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Do you have a favorite project that you've worked on so far? Um, they're all exciting, I think.
2: You know, because they're all new. You know, the, the big Titanosaur was great because it didn't quite fit in the room, and we had to make it fit in the room. You know, and that was exciting. And it's always, I don't know for us, I think it's all, all about the opening. You know, because we work like in our shop right now. We probably have twenty skeletons on the go. You know, so everyone's building skeletons but then when they move away from our shop and they go into a museum and then the opening and it's always the children you know they come in and ah, look at that and their <laughs> eyes light up and they're smiling they're so happy and then you, you feel that you, you know and the, and we try to get as many staff out to an opening like that as we can just so that they can see their work on display and then realize that it's not just a job gluing bones together like, yeah. like it, it, it has another purpose yeah. that's great so do you have a background in blacksmithing, or how did you... No, I don't. Um, Garth does, who's here. Okay. And Matt here, he's, he's got some blacksmithing. But um, my background is mainly uh, the molding casting side. Like, okay. Uh, it was going to be a sculpture, so it's, it's all around molding and casting, and, and welding armatures and things like that. And now we've brought crew in, like like Garth's a, a master blacksmith, and Matt is uh, a millwright, you know, so... <laughs> He knows his way around the metal and the machines and the engineering drawings and all that sort of stuff. So we have a very good crew of experienced people now.
1: Cool. Yeah, I so saw on your website too, you also have a thing for sculpting and it's a lot of artistic style sculpting. So that kind of yeah. makes sense with your yeah. background. Yeah. Cool. Yeah.
0: So other than the Smithsonian new exhibits coming out in 2019, what else can we look forward to seeing from you?
2: <laughs> well, we have the project here, the models here. We're doing a uh, for the Natural History Museum in Kuwait. Right. That's next year. And then we're doing a, a blue whale skeleton for the Natural History Museum in London. And then we have Dippy that's going on in conjunction one goes in, one goes out, <laughs> sort of thing. And then, oh, and we're doing two blue whales one for the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, another one for um, Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. <laughs> So they're pretty big. Like you got, you know, like a eighty foot blue whale in the shop, and, and then we have two of them. Then we do another one in England, and that's all by s- spring next year. So there's a lot going on. Just
0: there now. is, yeah, yeah, busy.
1: How big is your shop that you can fit a blue whale and all these <laughs> dinosaurs and um, really everything? Length. I think we're on.
2: Well, we have a uh, forty-eight thousand square feet. We're probably two hundred feet wide and eight hundred feet long. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty big. So it's basically a warehouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Actually, we saw a video. Was it ABC or something? A news did a like a two-minute video of your warehouse. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Outside of dinosaurs and prehistoric and things and blue whales, are there any other animals that are really popular? Um, we delve into other areas. Like we've done
2: coral reefs and we've done hydrothermal vents and the, the planets at the planetarium at the M and H. We've done them. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we, we do do other work, but our main bread and butter are extinct animals you know? <laughs> and animals on the verge of extinction, like the blue whale. You know? So yeah. yeah, we're always revolving around that, <laughs> that, that sort of thing, you know.
0: Cool. Okay. So one more question. We ask everybody this, what's your favorite dinosaur?
2: <laughs> Probably the Brachiosaurus in Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice, nice big, big, well, it's not as big as it used to be compared to these new ones coming out. Sure. You know, like it's, <laughs> sort of over the years it shrunk a little bit, but, but like still my favorite, I think.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. Well, thank you so much.
2: Okay, thank you. This has been very good.
0: Thanks.
1: (laughs) Thanks again to Peter May for sitting down to speak with us. We kind of ambushed him at their table at SVP, and he graciously agreed to give us an interview.
0: Yes. Thank you. (laughs) We really appreciate it.
1: We're big fans of all the awesome stuff that has already come out and then the things that they're working on. And I didn't even realize all the things that they've done.
0: No, there was this great slideshow they had at their booth and we just kind of stood there and watched the whole
1: thing. It took a long time. It was like a 15-minute slideshow and they didn't spend more than a couple seconds on each thing. It's crazy. Yep. But thanks again. Before we get into the dinosaur of the day, we have another word from the Royal Tyrrell Museum. The Royal Tyrell Museum is one of the largest and most respected paleontology museums in the world. The museum takes you on a journey through time that brings you face-to-face with some of Canada's mightiest dinosaurs. With nine ever-evolving galleries, fun hands-on activities, and the rugged beauty of Alberta's badlands that yield the greatest diversity of dinosaur fossils in the world, there's something for everyone. The Fossils on Focus exhibit that we've talked about a little bit before just got updated with some new fossils and that's the whole purpose of the gallery the whole idea is that they put out fossils when they're new and exciting and people want to see them rather than storing them away for months or years until they have a whole gallery to go along with it they just put things out really quickly so they've rotated in some cool new fossils i was happy to see that they still have the regaloceratops on display. That's the one that was also called Hellboy that was published last year, and it's got those kind of bumps along the back of its frill that look, I guess, a little bit like a crown. I think that's why they called it Regaloceratops, and then it's uh, Ceratopsian, so it's got the two post-orbital and the one nasal horn. It looks really cool, and it's really impressive to see in person. It's pretty a pretty complete skull, but then they also just added an ichthyosaur that's from the late triassic and like we often say the royal tyrol museum doesn't just do dinosaurs they do all sorts of different paleontology so if you're interested in ichthyosaurs they have a cool new one on display there and they also have a new pterosaur on display and this one's from the late jurassic about 150 million years ago ish and it looks really cool. It's one of those where it's in a really clean piece of almost slate-like stone so that you get a lot of detail. It kind of reminds me of the Archaeopteryx lithographica.
0: I was just going to say, yeah.
1: Where it's it's really neat lines and you can kind of see these outlines possibly. I wonder if they did the laser fluorescence on it, if you'd be able to see kind of where the skin was. It looks like you might be able to. That'd be cool. And yeah, it's really interesting looking. It's got teeth which is always kind of disturbing to see flying animals with teeth.
0: That's just because we're not used to it.
1: Yeah, it's a little (laughs) creepy. And then, you know, they've got those super long spindly limbs like all the pterosaurs have, so it's cool. So if you're looking to support paleontological research, the museum's membership program supports its scientific research exhibits and educational programs and offers unlimited admission to the museum. More information can be found at TyrrellMuseum.com.
0: And that is T-Y-R-R-E-L-L museum.com.
1: Thanks. I'm not good at spelling. It's better when you do it.
0: <laughs> And now on for our dinosaur of the day, Edmontonia, which was a request from Damien via Facebook. So thanks, Damien. It's named after the Edmonton Formation, now the Horseshoe Canyon Formation in Canada, where it was found. And it's part of the Notosaur family. It lived in the late Cretaceous. Charles Sternberg named the type species Edmontonia longiceps in 1928, and longiceps means long headed in Latin. Hmm. Sternberg did not classify Edmontonia, and L.S. Russell classified it as Notosauridae in 1930, which has been confirmed. George Patterson, the teamster on an expedition that Charles Sternberg led, found Edmontonia in 1924 on that expedition, and he found a skull, lower right jaw, and a lot of the postcranial skeleton, including the armor. Barnum Brown found a different species, Edmontonia rugosidens, in 1915 in Alberta, Canada, and sent it to the American Museum of Natural History, though it wasn't yet named. William Diller Matthew referred that specimen to Paleosaniscus in 1922 in a Popular Science article without naming the species. It was supposed to name a new species in conjunction with Brown, but the article wasn't actually published. And Matthew also referred another specimen found by Levi Sternberg in 1917. Then in 1930, Charles Gilmore referred both of these specimens to Paleocynthus rugosidens, based on a type specimen found in 1928 by George Fryer Sternberg. And the species name, rugosidens, means rough tooth. In 1940, Laurie Shano Russell referred all three specimens, though, to Edmontonia rugosidens. So, there are two main Edmontonia species the type species Edmontonia longiceps and Edmontonia rugosidens, which in addition to the Paleocynchus had its own genus for a while called Chasternbergia, named by Bob Bakker as a subgenus in 1988, based on it lived before Edmontonia longiceps and it had a different skull proportion, but then George Olshevsky gave it the full generic name in 1991, and that name honors Charles Chast Sternberg, through this subgenus, genus name that's rarely applied. But later finds have been referred to as Edmontonia rugosidens. In 1971, Walter Preston Combs Jr. renamed the two Edmontonia species to Panoplosaurus, but then the name Edmontonia was later revived. There's been other species, like Edmontonia schlismani, originally was Denversaurus schlismani until 1992, and then Edmontonia australis, named in 2000 by Tracy Lee Ford, though now that's considered to be a junior synonym of Glyptodontpelta mimus. Gregory Paul suggested in 2010 that Edmontonia rugosidens was a direct ancestor of Edmontonia longiceps, which was a direct ancestor of Edmontonia schlesmani. So Edmontonia was bulky and like a tank. It's about 22 feet or 6.6 meters long, though Gregory Paul estimated in 2010 that two of the Edmontoni species, Longiceps and Rugucidins, were about 20 feet or 6 meters long and weighed 3 tons. It had a pear-like shaped skull when viewed from above, and its body had many osteoderms, and the plates protected its neck and shoulders. It had small bony plates on its back and head and sharp spikes along its sides, and the four largest spikes were on its shoulders. And in Edmontonia rugosidens, the second set of spikes on its shoulders split into subspines. And in Edmontonia longiceps, the spikes were relatively small. The size of the spikes in Edmontonia rugosidens varied a bit more. The shoulder spikes had solid bases. And they probably had large spikes to attract mates or defend territory, or also to intimidate rivals or predators or for self-defense. The shoulder spikes wouldn't have been a great defense, though, since they only covered the shoulders, so they're probably not great against large theropods like Albertosaurus. Spikes could have been like horns, where Edmontonia locked them to show dominance. Kenneth Carpenter described traits of Edmontonia in 1990 by comparing it with close relative Panoplosaurus. The snout had... Parallel sides, the skull armor was smooth on the surface and had shorter neural arches and neural spines than Panoplosaurus. Carpenter also showed how two of the Edmontonia species were different. Edmontonia rugosidens did not have sideways projecting osteoderms behind its eye sockets, and Edmontonia longiceps did not have an ossified cheek plate. The skull was up to 1.6 feet or 0.5 meters long and elongated with a horny upper beak, and they had a paranasal tract. That ran along the outside of the nasal cavity. This is the first time found in a notosaurid, but not an ankylosaurid, which had more complex air tracks. They may have stayed low to the ground to prevent predators from flipping them over and attacking their underbelly. They did not have a tail club like ankylosaurs, and they had a narrower mouth than ankylosaurs. Edmontonia appeared in Dinosaurs Unextinct at the LA Zoo, which is a new exhibit that opened April 15th and ran through October 31st of this year. It was also at the L.A. County Fair this year, which ended in September, and it was part of an exhibit at the North Carolina Aquarium this year, which also ended in September.
1: Wow, it was really making the rounds.
0: It was. (laughs) So again, Edmontonia is part of Notosauridae, and that's a family of ankylosaurs, and they lived in the late Jurassic to late Cretaceous in what is now North America, Europe, Asia, and Antarctica. They were medium to large and heavy, and they were quadrupedal herbivores with osteoderms on their bodies.
1: Yeah you've probably seen Edmontonia a lot. It's the notosaur that has the really big spikes kind of sticking out of the front of its shoulders and not so much on the rest of its body. That's kind of the big characteristic look, at least when I look at it. And it's got the flexible tail without a club. So it's not quite as exciting as ankylosaurus,
0: in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) You're a bit biased though.
1: I am. And our fun fact of the day, was inspired by our talk with Peter May about Dippy. So, Dippy <laughs> Dippy has been on display at the Natural History Museum in London since 1905, and its cast was ordered from the U.S. after King Edward VII saw Carnegie's sketch of the original and wanted a copy of it. <laughs> and now in 2017, its 292 bones will be packed up, and it'll it will tour the uk for at least a few months and we still don't know exactly where it will end up but pretty good run 112 years yeah i'm still a little disappointed that they're taking it down for a blue whale which isn't nearly as
0: exciting yeah but it is a cast
1: yeah and there are at least i want to say nine others of that exact (laughs) cast in like paris and all over the rest of europe and the world But I think that's the first cast that was on display and it's been there for so long, it's too bad that they don't want to keep it anymore.
0: Maybe it'll come back. Could be. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to all of our supporters getting us to now 102 episodes and to SVP for the first time. If you'd like to join our growing group of supporters, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at inodino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com. Or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr,
2: or Twitter at iknowdino.